Welcome to Bread and Milk. I'm Naomi Devlin and I'll be taking you on a soothing ramble through the food memories of some of my favourite people. So my first guest on the podcast is Aran Goyawaga. Uh, she comes from the Basque country and although she's lived in the States and Seattle for a long, long time, she has this incredible connection to where she came from, uh, which really resonates with me because I was born in Ireland and yet I grew up in the UK and I have this kind of melancholic longing for everything Irish. And you can really feel that coming through from Aran, who has these amazing stories of her upbringing bringing in this patisserie and uh, everything that kind of went on around that and this the the connection to the earth and the land around that was very much part of Basque culture so she carries that forward with her in everything she does uh, and if you know her Instagram or her blog you'll know that her everything that she does has that kind of reference to what came before and yet it's very much of its place so the, her images are filled with this incredible Seattle light. In the winter, there seems to be this kind of constant luminous mist hanging over everything, which is just beautiful. So if you ha don't already follow her on Instagram, absolutely go and check her out because her everything she posts is just absolutely beautiful. I uh, have a special connection with Aran because we both approach gluten-free in a similar way in that we kind of were interested in the wholesome quality and in the flavor and in looking at grains uh, of themselves and making something uh, that is true to the grain itself rather than trying to make ersatz versions of gluten-free foods and so I am continually inspired by what she does. Uh, she puts flavour first and for me that's what food's all about and what food is also about for Aran is caring for other people and about grounding herself and nurturing herself and her whole approach to food is incredibly nurturing. There's something in Spanish which um, there's a phrase which is the sobra mesa, which is to sit around the table after the meal and just spend that time digesting not only the food, but also the company. And you get this real sense from Aran that something about caring for other people and having people around her is really important. And this was recorded right at the beginning of lockdown last year. Uh, and so obviously, that is all kind of uppermost in our uh, in our thoughts at that point and and that sense of not that we knew how long it would go on but that sense of being cut off from our loved ones and the people around us and particularly for Aran from being cut off from her relatives in the in Spain which she couldn't visit so although we don't specifically talk about that in the podcast that is there there's like a sense of longing I think uh, which uh, it can be longing doesn't have to be a negative thing I think it can be something which connects you with your heart and that's very much what I feel about Aran is that she is incredibly connected to her heart and you will be, feel connected to it too because she speaks so openly uh, I absolutely love talking to her and I hope you enjoy listening
a lot of my food memories are attached to different parts of my life, like where I grew up and then my transition into other countries and then living in the U.S. And so like discovering also root beer for the like the first time I tasted root beer in the U.S. or things like that, that I, you know, things that I didn't grow up with. Yeah. Um, or like the canned Heinz spaghetti and beans and all those things that I had in Ireland the first time. And so, yeah, yeah, just yeah so many which things. is so of it's like food that's of its place, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Root beer is so American. <laughs> and actually, I wouldn't say necessarily, I guess beans and canned spaghetti are so British, aren't they? They're more British than Irish, but you know, I, I'm only saying that because I'm Irish and yeah, I don't yeah. want to take responsibility for <laughs> spaghetti in a can. But it was because the first time, it was before I had been to the UK. So first I, when I was 11, I went to Ireland. And then okay. when I was 12, I went to London. So okay. my first experience outside of my family food or think even my own country um you know was in ireland so yeah i can smell it and it was almost like a ground beef oily ground beef spicy almost like a shepherd like if you take a shepherd's pie inside but ground beef oh and i feel like she put it on it must have been potatoes. That I sounds... have this, I don't know what it was. I don't know the name of it. It maybe yeah, yeah. it was just nothing. Maybe it was just something that the lady made, but I just remember it in my head, like very like spicy, like um, not spicy, like as in hot, but like uh, paprika-y and just had mm. all these flavors that I, I didn't grow up. You know, people think of Spain and they think of a lot of, maybe they associate spice, but, it's not. It's very bland and, you know, it's very plain. Not very bland. Mi- mild, isn't it? Mild. Not mild. hot spices. But lots of yeah. paprika. I mean, paprika is very Spanish. Yeah. Or not yeah, so maybe much not so much Spanish. in the north. Yeah. yeah That's more, more like once you get to the south and they do have cinnamon and mm. they use all those things in savory cooking, but not in the north. Yeah, yeah. And like yeah. the murcia and all that, which is very cinnamon and paprika, and, isn't it? Yeah. But not in the north. Leeks oh. and rice. Okay, no way. Yeah, yeah more yeah. like, uh, what's the Galician stew for butter? Yeah. yeah. So that's like, like it's very plain, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. deeply flavoured. Yeah. Strangely, more like an Irish stew. So an Irish yeah. stew is like meat and potatoes and leeks and, and onions. And maybe yeah. a carrot. If you're really lucky, maybe you get a carrot in there. But it's like the flavor is very deep, strangely. Mm-hmm. It's not, it relies just on the produce, on the quality of the meat and on the yeah. good potatoes. And, uh, you know, and actually it's a different kind of way of cooking, isn't it? Than that really richly spiced food. You're relying mm-hmm. always on the, the quality yeah. of the produce. Yeah. North, the north of Spain and you've been there, so you know, it's definitely more influenced by the Northern Atlantic uh, cuisines or just because the produce and the influences Mm. uh, are are more than the South. Once you start going into the Southern part of Spain, where was actually the Moorish empire was for 500 years, they have a lot more spices Mm. uh, that came from the East. 
but we yeah. didn't we didn't have that even our roman influence in the north it's it's just kind of like very very uh, faint very much of produce uh fish mostly some meat and salt pepper and parsley onions so leeks very important um mm. yeah that's amazing you would not think of leeks in spain i wouldn't yeah that's oh, incredible leeks in the basque country are wow. i have to send you i did this little video series um called the cook's remedy and one of the episodes i went back to my grandparents garden which they passed away and the house burned down but the leeks are still growing there so my dad and i went and peeked picked leaks from the ground and I got emotional. <laughs> oh, oh, why? So what was it but about that? Now that we're talking, actually leeks, the smell of leeks is like a really important food memory, smell memory. When, when I was little, I grew up in a town that was maybe 30 minutes from where my paternal grandparents lived and they lived on stone house that had a garden and pretty rural area and so we would go visit them on Sundays and they would always send us home with produce and leeks were one of them and I just remember my dad's he had a set which is a it was a Spanish version of a fiat mm -hmm. uh, 132 was in the, the model of the car <laughs> and I, I just remember the hot the car being hot because maybe it was sunny day and by the middle of the day got hot and just sticking leeks in a plastic bag and that smell of leeks and dirt in the hot car is like one of the strongest memories of her, that I have that I've, of my childhood. Wow. Really wow. intense because, you know, leeks are quite intense. Pungent. Uh, yeah. So that's one, definitely one, one of the strongest memories. And what is it when you think about that? Because you said, oh, it made you tearful going back and picking them. What, what is it that makes you tearful? I think just because um, it was something that I didn't, I just didn't really ever appreciate. I mean, I love my grandparents, of course, but going, visiting them, it almost felt like a chore of going to visit them on Sundays and you know there were elderly people so our conversations were always about you know as a kid I probably wasn't that interested or uh, then they made us go to church at noon and just all these things and then the smell of the leeks were so strong it just felt I, I, I just didn't really appreciate it and I, I know it sounds terrible to say that but um, but then knowing that I just wasn't going to have that ever again. You know, when you're a kid, you don't know mm. the things yes. that you lose. Yeah. You think and everything I, will carry on forever just as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think realizing that uh, and having moved away, you know, and really missing my family. And then, you know, my, grandpa my grandparents passed away when I was living in the U.S. And uh, mm. it just made me sad. And then going back to their their land and the house burned down. So oh. we lost all the memories that were with the house. Wow. Um, that was really intense. I mean, I guess the reason why I wanted to do this podcast, because for me, food and smells like perfume and food and, and mm -hmm. everything that's kind of that sensual 
part of it is so resonant and has so much memory attached to it. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it's tragic to lose belongings and photographs mm -hmm. and all of that, but actually that you can smell something and it can take you to a moment in your past. And mm -hmm. it may be a particular moment or like you're saying, it was every Sunday and the sun, the smell of the leeks takes you back there. And that was something that, you know, a memory can change as well in, in your perception of it. Because as a child, your association was routine and see the grandparents and hot car and all. And then as an adult, you, because you have that sense of, of the potential of loss and, and of your own growing up and the imminence of death and all of that, you know, that, that some, somehow those memories, then they shift, but you're taken there by that one smell, which is incredible, isn't it? It's something as humble as a leak. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a romantic, it's not a rose, it's not a madeleine, <laughs> you know, it's just a leak. <laughs> so I love that. That's so, you know, it's, it's pedestrian, but it's also so deeply meaningful because it connects you to your past. Yeah. Mm. There's something also very, uh, and I don't know if it's just me. I do think that it's part of the Basque culture too, of this um, kind of that Irish feeling too. And, and a lot of the Celtic, like the Northern Spain, uh, even Portugal with uh, Saudade, you know, that, that feeling of, how would you describe that in that English? Melancholy. Like, yeah, melancholy. Yeah. A longing. Yeah. yeah. And I it's, think food is very tied to that. Yeah. To yeah. tradition um, and longing and, and memories and what you've lost, you know, in your life and, and, Mm. No, leaks very I hadn't thought about it when you asked me about memories I was not thinking about leaks maybe because it's too, too they do represent something sad for me the smell of them mm. Uh, mm. my youth I don't know why but mm. yeah I mean obviously for you you have this whole there are so many food memories because your family was involved with food um, and so uh, that's something that it's the opposite of my upbringing where there was virtually for my very young years no connection to food because my mum had anorexia and was absolutely and was recovering but really she was always like food is fuel food is fuel and I think that's why I'm so obsessed with food because <laughs> I was like oh my god the couples are always bare but actually for you when you grew up there was so much connection to food wasn't there yeah, but do you do you do you know that I also had anorexia? Ah, oh, okay. I did know that you had had some so, kind of. So yeah. I do think that because in my family, it was my maternal side. My grandparents uh, cooked and they grew food, but they, it wasn't a professional. Uh, it wasn't an identity thing. With my mom's family, they were professional chefs and my grandfather and his brothers were all pastry chefs mm. uh, they had studied apprenticeships when they were 14 went off to the war spanish civil war when they came back as young adults they all opened pastry shops in different parts mm. uh, and so we had all these and also big families because my mom is the oldest of eight and then my great uncles had five children so it was like huge families all professionally involved around food and so I think it was like a very, and I've always been a very independent person and I love my family. I love big gatherings, but I think I just wanted something that was different from 
our stamp. Because I think also where I'm from, and I think a lot of European, more traditional cultures, you kind of carry this thing, like if you're a blacksmith, like you come, you know, it's like you're the blacksmith family. And so that is what you, that is your identifying stamp. And, and I think I just felt really, uh, I don't, I, I just wanted to be separate from that, even though I never felt nobody ever pushed me. In fact, everybody always encouraged me to study something else, travel. My parents were always, you know, I told you earlier, when, when I turned 11, they sent me abroad to study English. And so like, they were always exposing me to other things. Mm. It, was, so it, it wasn't ever imposed by anybody. I just felt it. It's just not my personality to be part of clans or groups. I just kind of always want to do my own thing. <laughs> you For better wolf. or worse. I'm a little bit. <laughs> For better or worse. Yeah. Uh, so and it, back to our, our thing. So I think because food was something that I understood very well, it was the thing that was easy for me to control when I felt my life was out of control for various reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when I was a late teen, well, I was actually already in my early 20s, um, that's when it became, it took, kind of took hold of me in a, in a sort of a anxiety form, mm -hmm. mental illness uh, kind of thing. Um, how did you move into recovery? Um, I, I moved away from the Basque country okay. and I think that was part of it. I think it really was what I needed. So it started when I was in my last two years of university in this really highly competitive environment, which I was there, not against my will, I wouldn't say, but just wasn't interested, um, was surrounded by people who loved what they were doing highly competitive, looking forward to their future in this business field. And I just, I just lost interest in all things. Mm. Um, and, you know, this depression took form of anorexia. And I think I just needed to separate myself from, from all those things. Uh, I just needed to get away. And so I, that's when I moved away to the U.S. But I met my uh, now husband, boyfriend back then, uh, during that time when it was kind of tumultuous and I was starting to slide into anorexia. And so finally, when I graduated from university, he was living in the U.S. He was American. And so I said, I'm going to come hang out with you. So I came and then I stayed and uh, I got married. And the first year or so here, I was in total isolation, still very much living because anorexia just takes, and you know, since you lived it with your mother, but it takes a uh, hold of your life in the way of structure. Everything revolves around planning. And I think most addictions have that, take that shape of you make time slots of, you know, you're going to eat this much, you're going to eat it at this time. It's, it's just a really restrictive, mm. uh, controlling behavior. And so I lived like that probably for the first year that I was here. And then I went uh, the opposite way. I started binge eating, mm. uh, also another form of the same thing, but just a different side of the coin, and uh, behavioral moment. And then I found it, I started working, and then the work took over, meaning my life took another structure. So, you know, I grew up in a pastry shop. I watched uh, people bake every day. Uh, 
I grew up across the street from the pastry shop, so I, it was my home base essentially. And but I, I would deliver pastries uh, on Sundays, and I would just hang out and hold my grandmother around. But I never, I would was never an apprentice in there. Mm. And uh, when I moved to the U.S., uh, that was 1998, and I, in 2002, I, I went to culinary school. Four-year process of me getting better, uh, working, flailing in these corporate jobs. Then I finally decided, okay, I need to find something that it's really going to take a hold of my. Like I, I want to be passionate about something, and I'm not passionate about any of these things that I'm doing right now. And I had been baking as, as, when I started to kind of recover from the eating disorder. I started baking uh, in a way to find that connection with my family that was so far away. Mm. And I remember I had this old book that I kept with all re family recipes that I that I had brought with me to the U.S. And I kind of was reference, referencing them and 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 going back to those and talking to my family a lot about my my grandfather had passed away by then. Okay. And he was kind of the, all the, most of the recipes were in his head. Wow. And uh, so just having conversations with my mother about this. So it was, kind of, it was really a way also to stay connected with my, like have a conversation with my family. You mm. know what I mean? Mm. Like it was, it is something we talk about all the time. It's what so what do you talk about because I know recently you posted about uh doing recipe development and you were speaking to your mother and you were talking about a flan that you were making uh, or a, a lemon tart I think it was yeah. and uh yeah so there's so that you're keeping that kind of dialogue going yeah everything but it could be about fava beans okay it could be anything she just it's that kind of anybody who has been to the Basque country. And I want to say Spain in general. Uh, it is really like 75% of the conversations about are about where you buy your food, where you're going to make with it, who's growing what, where the fish, like what port you're going to go to get the fish. It's just, it's really mm. an obsession. Mm. Or maybe it's just my family, but I, I see it in my friends and everybody just really focus on, and it's really about the quality. Like, this person has the options are not like you don't maybe have now things are opening up you don't have 50 kinds of lettuces let's say like you can find in the u.s mm. there's maybe three types of mm. lettuces people grow but people do spend time okay who at the market has the best lettuce and checking mm. it and checking the tomatoes and all these things that are just like i don't very detailed Mm. very detailed about food um and ingredients about the ingredients yeah so i love to go to spain and i love spain and and yet my experience of restaurant food is unless you're going to like a beautiful restaurant in san sebastian maybe you know which is celebrating produce but a lot of everyday restaurants they really they want to fry everything and there's no connection to the vegetables and maybe they're celebrating the fish or the meat you know some beautiful pressa or something but it's not uh it doesn't relate to the produce that i see in the market and so whenever we go there i always self-cater and we eat amazing food but it's my food <laughs> you know and so i don't feel that connection and maybe we'll go to the butchers and 
and they'll be very proud of their produce or they might uh, you know have some beautiful morthia or whatever but it's yeah it's a it's a weird disconnect that i find between the restaurants and home food but that's obviously your experiences of home food I think the Basque country is might be a little bit different than a lot of the places maybe in the Mediterranean where there's more they're more geared towards tourism. Mm. But I do think it's true that eating out when I was growing up was a very special occasion kind of thing. So of course if you're going to go eat out they're going to give you you're going to find more meat or f- more expensive fish or things that you don't necessarily eat every day. But the everyday food that I grew up with was always a first course of uh, cabbage, Swiss chard, lentils, you know, a salad, um, peas with fava beans and jamon. Mm-hmm. And then a second course was a little bit of fish or a little bit of meat. Meat was usually maybe on Sundays with beans or like a favada kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then a piece of fruit or yogurt. That was kind of like how, and that's how children eat at school too. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe vegetables were more seen as a every, something that people would eat every day mm. in their house. Mm. Um, maybe that's or, why. Or peasant food. I mean, I've heard it yeah. said that there's this connection with, you know, vegetables being peasant food and the meat and fish being somehow aspirational and the fried food being aspirational. And therefore you don't want to go to a restaurant and eat peasant food. Although obviously you do because the vegetables are the things that are so incredible. You know, you just like, oh, when I go to Spain, just the, the, the quality, the sweetness, you know, the, and like you were saying, you know, the peas or the, or the first broad beans with jamon, you know, and mm. it's just like the actual quality of the produce is so beautiful. You were saying one of your memories was eating your first carrot. I think I must have been four or five. I can't, I can't remember quite well, but my grandmother was, she was from a small town, um, close to where I grew up. And her family had a homestead, but not a huge homestead, but like a, a beautiful, beautiful old house that was actually taken from them during the war. So Franco's troops came in into town and then they had to flee and they took over the house. So when the war was over, they came back to the house. My, grand, my great-grandmother and her children, her husband had passed away. And so they built this beautiful garden. It's like a thing of like, when we talk about it in our family, is the, the garden of my, my aunt's garden. And uh, so she took me, we, we would visit, not maybe once a month, we'd go see her. And uh, I remember her taking me and pulling carrots out of the ground. And you know, I had good carrots because our carrots came, we didn't have industrial agriculture yet. So probably came from some other farmer, but probably a bigger farm. And she pulled this little tiny carrot and I, she told me, eat it. And I never had a, a raw carrot before in my life. Wow. Carrots were always cooked. Yeah. And with leeks or whatever it was in soups, but it, they were always cooked. And I remember eating it and realizing that it was slightly spicy. Mm. And mm. I just assumed, you know, that spice, almost like a gingery, mm. gingery mm. taste to carrots or like a parsnip sort of mm. spicy taste. And I had never tasted that before. Huh. And it stuck with me. And my mom later told me, now when I have conversations about that, 
she just tells me my my great aunt at the time she grew things that nobody else was growing like, like what? different kinds of beets or she had uh greens and, and herbs that other people didn't have mm. um i i can't i can't remember specifically which things but that she was very you know people grew leeks and potatoes and carrots and all the typical things but that she always had something that was maybe if it was beets it was like a different kind of beet that nobody had or mm. and i'm not sure where she got the seeds but um because you couldn't you didn't really buy plants you know it was all seeds and she had different kind of squash and things that you know that were unusual for them How amazing and uh, you know this is after the war so it was pretty scarce uh mm. so yeah that was mm. i remember that very well there's a um, so when I grew up, uh, so one, one of my, the thing about my connection to food started when we moved to the commune and, um, and there, there was this huge, like you're saying, this garden, the garden where everything grew, everything. It was a huge walled garden and all around the walls were like plums and apricots and, uh, apple trees. And then there were huge, great big rows of just different vegetables and herbs and polytunnel. And, you know, it's, it was kind of like a, a proper garden of, of Eden. And that for me, that was where I had my first carrot and it would have been, I guess I would have been 11 cause we, we moved there. And I remember that I had never encountered the leaves before. And I didn't realize that you could eat the leaves and also that the leaves have almost like a kind of eucalyptus flavor to them. You know, there's this kind of almost pine or something. Mm -hmm. It's weird, something that seems to have nothing to do with carrot, but like the way that you get the, the whole flavor of a tomato when you smell the leaves as well as the mm -hmm. tomato and you eat them together. Uh, that's what I couldn't believe. You know, people were eating the leaves of the carrots, you know, with Tahiti and stuff. And, and that was to me, it was just, yeah, a, such a revelation that people would again, just pull things out the ground and you could eat them there and then and, and how fresh and sweet and incredible they were. You know, it's, it's such an immediate thing, isn't it? To, see where something's come from and, and experience it almost while it's still alive well i think it's it's something i always um say to people if they're struggling to get kids interested in food is that growing it or cooking it in some way will connect you to the food and therefore you're much more likely to eat it uh, and there is that sense isn't there it's the more disconnected we get from our food the more packaged meat gets or the more sanitized vegetables get the less we have that sense of of the the kind of immediacy of the whole vegetable and, and it's growing and where it's come from. And I do think we crave that connection, which is, that's why people come to River Cottage because they're desperately craving a connection with the land and, and where their produce has come from. So I have a, a story about arroz con leche because I we were staying in um, in a, a little town in Andalusia, and I uh, ha I have a real thing for rice pudding, and I've always made it, but I make it you know different ways. And uh, at that time, I was really into kind of Persian rice pudding, you know, with saffron and rice uh, rose water and mm -hmm. you know coconut milk. And I had recently discovered that I couldn't have milk 
And so I was uh, having rice milk or almond milk or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we were staying in this little place and I had sudden craving for rice pudding. And mm-hmm. so I got some paella rice and I went to the, to the local shop. And the only thing I could think to make it creamy was because I couldn't have the butter and I couldn't have the milk was to put some manteca in it, manteca de cerdo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, uh, and I had some roy, vanilla rooibos tea bags and I had some almond milk and the guy would not sell me the manteca. And I kept saying, that's what I want, manteca. And he was like, no. And he was pointing me towards margarine and saying, I think you want margarine I was like no I really want that (laughs) you wouldn't let me buy it and in the end I I got it home and I put it in the rice pudding and it was so delicious there was something incredible it was proper well lard is what is in English Mm -hmm. isn't it it was proper lard and I obviously for anyone vegetarian or vegan that's an absolute no no but I'm not uh and it the the depth of flavor was incredible but also because I had never had rice pudding with lard in it and with this kind of vanilla rooibosh it was such a thing of that holiday uh, in that place just eating the rice pudding with lard in it you know and and so if I made that now it would probably take me straight Mm. back to that place you know the little house and the yeah it's so (laughs) so there you go I'm trying to imagine that (laughs) (laughs) what does it taste like it was amazingly good. It's so funny, isn't it? You would not think it would be good at all. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, no, it's wrong. But if you think in, like in, in Italian uh, patisserie, uh, you get things, oh, it's probably the same mm-hmm. in Spain, but you get things fried in strutto, which is the same, mm-hmm. the Italian for lard. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's like holiday food is fried in lard, you know, and then sprinkled in confectioner's sugar. And that's the thing that's like, oh, the 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 prized fat, you know, the beautiful, noble fat. <laughs> you know? yeah. We have so, um, our holiday, our Christmas cookies in Spain are mantecados, mantecadas. Exactly. And manteca is lard. So they're, it's shortbread made with lard. Yeah. And, and it's so short. Lard. Yeah. And it's so very crumbly. Short. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> so, have you made mantecadas um, gluten-free? Yeah, it's pretty easy with rice flour. Okay. Um, it's kind of like a, like the Mexican wedding cookies, or yeah. I don't know if you know what that is. That's a very like U.S. thing, or like uh, um, sandies, like uh, walnut sandies or pecan sandies. It's kind of like that, but made with. And I think the medic Mexican wedding cookies uh, are probably mantecadas. It's probably like a Spanish yeah. thing. So yeah, I make those all the time. Okay. I think the thing about the Spanish lard is that it's uh, the stuff that I found was from um, Iberico de Belota pigs, and it has a particular flavour, doesn't it, that you do not get in lard from other places because the 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 whole meat is suffused with the flavour of the acorns, and so mm-hmm. you get a kind of nutty sweetness that comes through in the lard, and so therefore maybe it's not so kind of savory it has a like a suggestion of sweetness in it already mm-hmm. so maybe that's why it works so yeah so your arroz con leche so what is particular about that because that's a real kind of childhood thing for you is that right yes so sometimes you know even with these memories i wonder if it's 
that I've talked about them so much that they've become a thing through conversation rather than what it really was. And mm. I think this, that's the thing with memories, even with photographs that you look at over and over again. And it's like, do I remember this as it was? Or do I have a, am I make creating a memory in my head of a thought that I had? Or, you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so th I think with this uh, arroz con leche thing, it's similar to that because I, I named my blog after it, after those smells of cinnamon and, and vanilla and uh, my whole last 12 years of blogging and writing books and, and just answering interviews. It's been so much about this memory, mm. but I do, I mean, I've talked about it with my family and it's, it is, that was the smell of our pastry shop, which was every day there was a dairy up the street, which was a small house that had maybe five cows. And that was the dairy. It wasn't, nothing at the time was industrialized or, mm -hmm. you know, the eggs came and I'm talking seventies, eighties, things probably started changing in the nineties uh, when they had more of like a food inspection kind of scenario happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, so the dairy came from this little farmhouse, maybe uh, five kilometers up the street from the pastry shop. And they it came in these metal uh, milk canisters every day and it was raw so it was my grandmother's job to pasteurize it for then using it in the pastry shop and we they had these electric kettles I remember it had like a wood exterior and these iron or metal uh, conductors mm. and it was electric mm. so she would put it in there and it just simmered to temperature to pasteurize it mm. and then she would skim the top where all the milk fat, all the cream would rise. And then she would just slice bread and put it on the bread and then sprinkle it with cinnamon and sugar. And that was our snack. Mm -hmm. And so leftover milk wasn't something we had a lot of because it was for the pastry shop. But sometimes let's say it was a, the pastry shop always closed on Tuesday. So maybe it was a, a Monday and there was some leftover and because they didn't really leave it in the refrigerator more than two days, then she would use it to make natillas, which is another Spanish custard, mm. and arroz con leche. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember that as just something really special because it didn't, it, we didn't get that all the time, mm. even though milk and those smells were always permeating in the shop because they were always steeping milk with cinnamon sticks and vanilla for custards and all these things, but we didn't get to actually eat it, mm. arroz con leche that often. So she made it. And she put it on, never on like uh, deep bowls. It was always on these like soup plates. Huh. So there was maybe like two centimeters, about an inch of, uh, of the arroz con leche. And then it developed a little skin on top. And she would put Maria cookies. You know what, Maria? No. Galletas Marias. Galletas Marias are very Spanish. I think in uh, Latin America, they have them also, but they're these... Um, kind of, uh, they're not like digestive cookies, but they're what people uh, use to dip their... I wonder if they're, like, if they're like rich tea biscuits in, in England or Nice biscuits, have you come across? They're crispier. Okay. They're, they're dry. Yeah. And they have a stamp on them that says Maria, like the name Maria. And there's just like... Uh, I can't even, it's just the most popular kind of biscuit that 
we have. And so she'd put two biscuits on top and then sprinkle cinnamon. And then they would sit From, on the kitchen counter. No, whole. There's just whole. Whole. And they whole biscuits. Little, and they would get soggy on the bottom. Okay. And I loved that. <laughs> wow. And she would just lay them out, you know, because she had a lot of milk. So she probably made a big batch and there were maybe 12 plates on the dining room table and they never refrigerated really. And they just sit there and we'd just wait until they cooled. She could tell us, she would tell us because they had to be not too warm, not refrigerated. And mm. she would let us have one. And it was just so special. Mm. So that is always, you know, that I based that memory and in, in my career later on. So it's kind of <laughs> yeah, that, what a gift. <laughs> <So> defining. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So she put it in the soup plate to let it cool because the important thing was to actually eat it at room temperature almost. Yes. And a lot of things, it's funny, a lot of things were not refrigerated when I was a kid. Like fruit would never, tomatoes you would never put on oh. the refrigerator. You should or never put tomatoes. Or... <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a thing of mine. If anyone puts tomatoes in the fridge, they're a bad person in my eyes. <laughs> It's actually a trope. My family know that. If if there's any ever any talk of someone putting a tomato in the fridge, they're like, "Don't tell Naomi," <laughs> because it spoils. You know, flavor yeah. warmth brings out flavor. So yeah. I think um, that was. Her. I mean, if there was any leftover, I'm sure it was refrigerated. And but in the day when it was made, mm. uh, it was just it had a room temperature. Well, that's a Japanese thing with rice. When you cook rice, so often, you know, we have a lot of fear around rice, don't we? Rice, you know, the whole kind of uh, food safety aspect of rice. And yet uh, it's traditional in, J in Japan to cook your rice the night before, eat some rice for supper, and then to leave the rice and, and make the bento box for the next day with rice that's been sat at room temperature. Um, whereas we would be putting it in the fridge within an hour, wouldn't we? We'd be like, my God, don't eat that rice. It's been out for three hours at <laughs> room temperature. It's definitely going to poison you. You know, you just think, wow, that's somehow we've absorbed the fear around rice, which is unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And so in Japan, there's a, the, and I don't know what the word is, but there's a, sp a specific word for the flavor of rice that's been put in the fridge because oh. it changes, doesn't it? The texture and the, the flavor texture. change. Yeah, you know, there's that kind of hide hardening that goes on. It's never the same as when it's freshly made, you know, mm -hmm. freshly made sushi rice or, or basmati rice or rice pudding has a kind of creamy quality that you mm -hmm. can't recapture you know mm -hmm. and sweet we always um and that's the thing we didn't have we only had one kind of rice which was the bomba rice okay, la bomba, so yeah. all the it was sos is the the brand and that's what sauce I love sauce. Um, sauce. <laughs> Is that what you call it? Sauce. sauce yeah. I love that packet. It's so, it's like, it's never changed since the 70s. It's like white and blue and red, blue. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Yeah. So that was also the other thing. I didn't know there were different kinds of rice or even brown rice came later on. Yeah. Um, it's we just hard didn't to have a rice. lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we even didn't now. have cereals. Oh, now you can. Now you can find. Now we have, yeah. uh, you know, what they call bio. So like uh, okay, yeah, of course. So, like, yeah. You can find all kinds of coconut milk and things that we didn't, yeah. I didn't grow up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yes, more international mm -hmm. stuff, I yeah, guess. Yeah, for it? sure. Yeah. 
yeah oh so uh, i'm just thinking where to get where to go from here there's so much <laughs> with um uh i guess what i'd like to to um come on to is how you feel like because you are such a, a wonderful baker and obviously you've written two beautiful books um and i forgot to tell you i'll cut this bit out but i'll um i'll do a little intro on you uh, before i won't do it in front of you because it's just so squirmy to hear someone talking about you and have to sit there and listen you're like oh now i have to speak you know you eulogize me so i'll do that and i'll i'll splice that on the front and then i'll talk afterwards so it will be a, a little sandwich uh, and around a naomi sandwich um but yeah so i just wanted to ask you about how that how you feel that influences your baking now obviously you had uh like me uh you found that you had celiac disease and so that changed everything so you trained to be a pastry chef and you were you working to be in in uh, the industry yeah. and then so what I, happened so i i am actually not i don't have celiac disease I don't. I okay. have um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and I have Meniere's disease, which is inflammation of the. But I have autoimmune conditions, and yeah. if I didn't take care of it, I probably developed some other autoimmune thing. Um, but it is related to inflammation caused by food, but also environmental stress. I think also uh, my mental anguish and mental illness throughout the years probably. Um, was a factor, but it didn't really manifest itself until after I had left the pastry kitchen. Mm. So I studied, I went to pastry school in 2002, uh, graduated end of 2003. And as I was going to school, I started working in restaurants. So I would go to school in the morning and work restaurants at night, and then ended up at the Ritz Carlton Hotel Company and worked there for almost four years and until I became pregnant and then I stopped. Okay. And that's when, she, when I was pregnant is when they found out I had thyroid disease, uh, which was probably triggered by stress and pregnancy. And then that's when my whole journey into gluten-free baking started. Okay. But I had already, when I was working as a professional pastry chef, I was eating plenty of gluten and that's probably also my body was like no more. So yeah, so it took, it was kind of a, but sometimes I talk about this and I, in hindsight, I do remember as a child having, I think I, I probably was having gluten issues because I had, I was always constipated as a kid, too much information, but I was. Yeah, not for me. Okay. <laughs> I love that kind of information. In my, my family, we talk about bowel movements a lot. Oh, me too. Um, <laughs> so I, constipation was a thing for me and also depression as a teenager. Yeah. I just think that all these things were probably, uh, nothing happens in isolation, but I do mm. think that, that that definitely was eating too much gluten and too much sugar was probably mm, mm. an issue. 
And there's a, there are questions over, it's like a chicken and egg thing, which comes first, you know, uh, mental health or gut health, you know, and that how they're so tied because there is this intimate connection between the, the brain and the gut. And mm-hmm. so people, it's, it's, I've, in my work as a nutritionist, I rarely found someone with mental health issues who didn't have some kind of food issues or, or gut issues, or, you know, if you, if you dug around a bit. Uh, and, and so I just, think yeah you're right if you look back uh, and I could probably do the same and, and interestingly my celiac disease was triggered by pregnancy as well and so mm-hmm. I think for people uh, for women mostly <laughs> who are pregnant um, but the it because it's such a challenge the immune system your immune system is is um, suppressed while you're pregnant that people who have immune things which are you know where the immune system is overactive can often find that it kind of goes in into remission but if you're uh, in in the place where your immune system is is on the edge and it is really struggling then that can be the trigger Uh, Mm -hmm. so yeah so eating lots of and I previously I was working as uh, a department manager in a, in a, a, a huge great big fancy department store in London and doing a job I hated. I'm not a department manager. <laughs> Do you know, it's just, it's just the wrong thing for me. And, and so I wasn't eating, I was smoking, drinking coffee and eating a cake, just a piece of cake. That would be my, like the whole thing I'd eat in the day. And, uh, and I just think the stress of that, the, the, the stress on your body and the mental stress of doing something that you're not into. So for you, it was the, you know, the, the kind of corporate jobs and the, the, you know, studying something you didn't want to, that that is so much of a stress on your body that something has to ping. Uh, and of course, yeah, it's, that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, that, that there's the, it's like the soil is, is ready for it, but it's one event that often kind of triggers it, the whole kind of cascade. But when I was a pastry chef, I had a very unhealthy lifestyle also. Just really stressful, not sleeping, uh, staying up late, eating, like you said, we would eat. It's funny because when you work in a kitchen, you you don't really eat. I mean, I'm speaking of my own personal experience. We didn't eat well. We would eat a cookie. We would well, there was family meal, but we were always oftentimes skipping it because it was just too busy. Mm. Eat a piece of bread, have coffee. It was just uh, not, and just stress. You know, it wasn't. Mm. It wasn't very healthy. So, I don't know. I don't know many chefs that eat well. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, <laughs> it's so crazy, isn't it? But yeah. you know, until they get older, and then some health crisis will will lead them to have to readdress it but young chefs generally just not eating tasting they'll have terrible teeth or their teeth are falling out you know from constantly being covered in food and sugar and it's not it's a stressful life isn't it who would choose it if they really knew it's i mean i really like the intensity and the physical the physicality of it Mm. um i do i like things that are very physical i like giving birth. Wow. Like writing books. I like things that feel like allow me to go very much inside of myself. Okay. And I'm also very, um, I internalize my pain very, um, I've, I experience my pain very internally. Okay. So I like to, I like the focus of painful things mm. and, and, and joyful things, but also the, 
pain of um, like working or or I don't I don't know if I'm making oh. any that's really i wonder if that's i don't want to generalize about being basque but but historically the basque nation are known to be incredibly strong and you know like the the basque sailors are like almost uh, almost unstoppable aren't they and they can they can just you know keep going keep going and i wonder if that's part of the either the basque psyche or whether it's kind of somehow genetically a program to really, you know, to experience things very intensely. Mm-hmm. You know, whether I, that's I like a, you know, if, if things are too, if things are too soft and easy, something about you mm-hmm. is like, this doesn't feel right. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, d- I wonder, you know, there's, a, there's something about the Irish as well. So there's a, there's a kind of, uh, it's almost like an absorbed, feeling that life will be hard and you must joke about it i often feel a kind of connection with jewish humor there seems to be a, a you know a, a a kind of common theme of life is hard and the only way to get through it is either by wailing or by making very dark jokes that are almost painful to hear you know so Mm -hmm. it's like that intensity of feeling is I can really Mm -hmm. understand that why not feel everything intensely whether it's pain or pleasure Mm -hmm. but it's very internal I like to process it I don't really externalize it very much but I do love the intensity of things I feel like they're they're really and I don't know how to verbalize this but um a lot of shedding and a lot of growth oh it sounds so pretentious but a Uh, lot of (laughs) but a lot of learning happens to me through internal pain mm, i don't know and it sounds like too much of a martyr but um but it's yeah but i've i have seen that as a a thread in my life yeah but it's the way i process it comes through in your writing because your writing is incredibly uh moving even just writing about food, the way you write about it is incredibly moving. So it's, it's obvious that you are feeling it deeply when you're writing. Mm, thank you. Mm. No, I love the way you write. <laughs> <laughs> you're one of, one of my writing heroes, I think. Because it's, I think because so many people have written about food, it's easy to, to fall into cliches and to find something new or meaningful to write about food is really means that you have experienced a kind of true feeling about it rather than just searched around for some pretty words, which is a different thing, isn't it? It's funny you say that because I feel like I'm not a very good writer and I struggle with writing. And I feel like sometimes it started out very whimsical, which I do not like because I am not, I know it might appear that way, but I'm definitely not whimsical in fact I think I'm very utilitarian very practical (laughs) yeah yeah that's good (laughs) Um, so it's funny that some people see this romanticism I I do think I have a lot of feeling but I don't think I'm actually a very romantic person not just uh romantic as in like a um, I I guess I am I do like romanticize about seasons and nature I do Mm, nature is one thing that just really moves me so much and I think it because what really, it goes back to what we were talking about, about the longing. I do think loss is really important to me. Yeah. And I focus a lot on loss 
Okay. The things that I, I had and I don't appreciate, I didn't appreciate and I lost and what I've gained, but I think the losing something and gaining something is like something I really focus on. And so with nature too, I hopefully so far we've been able to really be able to maintain a seasonality and sort of there's an expectation that this is what's going to happen this year. And the, you know, but now we're, we're kind of losing that. We don't know what's going to happen with mm. nature and how the world and the earth and how we're going to live in, in, um, uh, what's coming next. Yeah. Well, like the synchro, like this synchronicity, like we don't know mm. how that's going to stay. And I think I am feeling that for nature. Mm. It's mm. sort of a potential loss. Uh, and anyhow, yeah, no, I think so that's the one thing. It's a, but it's like that, like you were saying, it does go back to that longing, that that kind of wistful, beautiful longing, almost like the feeling of uh, being in love with someone and then they're away, and you just long for them. You because and and that that pain of the longing is is wonderful as well. It's like when you've been exercising and you've got an aching muscle and you stretch it. You know that you it's painful, but you're like, oh, this feels good, and so that that moving from one season into the other can be also, oh, I remember the figs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, oh, the, was the asparagus wonderful, you know, and that, that is kind of, because if you had asparagus all year or figs all year, you'd just be like, Meh, asparagus and figs, okay, I'll have another one. And, and it would have to be the best fig ever to be, for you to feel, feel kind of moved by it. So something about briefness and the ephemeral nature of things changing is makes them more precious, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. I also definitely, this is weird, so I might not make it, but I had my um, uh, past life regression uh, cards done once and it said I was uh, a Celt. I was from a Celtic culture. I was a healer. And I was Native American. Okay. <laughs> so, which totally makes sense in how I've moved through geographically the things that I have been drawn to. And I'm, I've always been very attracted to the Atlantic, like oh. voyages, fishermen, uh, going west. It's sort of like the what happened, right? Like yeah. through Irish Vikings, all the Celts through northern Spain. Uh, Galicia, all all of that, Northern yeah. Canada, Halifax. Uh, yeah. So I feel like that's, I definitely, it's resonates with me. Something, yeah, something in and the genes. healing part. Yeah. And the healing part of, of all these cultures. Because uh, I think with my work too, what I ulti ultimately want is um, to really transcend and like tell people they're going to be okay. I don't know. I think that's like ultimate. That's what I want. Just ultimately, we're all going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. At the to end, provide when comfort. we're done. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is what you do. I mean, that's what your. Um, I mean, your work baking and the beautiful flower photographs and that sense of. I mean, I often think because you all your work is because you're based in Seattle has uh often has that particular light seattle has a particular light doesn't it and it's often 
kind of either soft light or foggy or it's like you can tell where someone is often by the kind of light that they mm -hmm. that they're surrounded by uh, and something about that softness comes through so there's a kind of restfulness in everything you do and it may be that you don't feel it yourself you may feel agitated while you're doing it but actually <laughs> the the effect of what you're putting out is incredibly restful and so that intent must come through in your work i guess the yeah. intent to to comfort yeah it's nice. I like Too much I, analysis. <laughs> uh, uh, I just think it's reflection, isn't it? It doesn't, um, you don't need to understand it. But um, I, I also try and comfort people if I can, because uh, I particularly think with gluten freeness or having to give something up or having any kind of issue with food, because food is so much about comfort and habit and uh, and when something is taken away from you or you have to you're forced to change a habit that you find comforting uh, that that you can feel very lost and very kind of groundless and so for someone to be able to say it's okay on the other side you know in fact it's better than okay it's delicious and beautiful and there's more potential than you ever dreamed is it that's all out there ahead of you is mm -hmm. is a kind of solace isn't it it's like mm -hmm. no don't don't see this as a as a lack it's mm -hmm. the you know going back to the moving through the seasons i mean i often get at the end of summer i get melancholy because mm -hmm. i love summer mm -hmm. <laughs> you know i just love wish and and i say i wish it would be summer all year round but actually then maybe i would get i wouldn't love summer the same way i'd be like yeah man summer <laughs> so so i go through that period of longing for summer and desperately trying to accept that it's autumn and that winter will be here and i'll have nice jumpers and whatever <laughs> and but actually, <laughs> but actually that longing to be reassured that there is something in the future is mm -hmm. yeah it's really human isn't it yeah but also back to what you were saying i i think sometimes food is so is such a grounding thing and you really see it when people are diagnosed with celiac disease or intolerance to this or they're having too much almonds so now they're having a intolerance to it or whatever it is and we get fixated on these things right like it's it's like we get up in the morning if we don't have the bread that we have always had we cannot function mm. And it is something I think that, and not to make too much of it, but I do think that when you overcome something in your mind that you think you can't do, I can't live without this bread, or I can't live without this person, or I can't, then it, it's like it gives you a sense of comfort and strength. And I can, it just helps you be able to tackle things that come your way with a different grounding and a different surrendering. And I think that, and not to make too much of gluten-free, and I also, the, the, the label gluten-free, the way it sounds, it's been so commercialized and, and it could be anything, right? Mm. But I do think that because we're, that's what we do, we're trying to make beautiful recipes for people that can't have gluten. Um, and, and just offer like, it's not that big of a deal. Like there's so many things and we don't need to just be fixated on, on, on the replacement or I want to have the same thing, but without that, or, you know, it's just learning to see food in a different way. 
yeah. and work with different ingredients and, and the possibilities. Mm, to celebrate the, the what things you haven't even tried yet. I mean, it's, <laughs> I guess, essentially, it's non-attachment, isn't it? It's that the, the, what frees you from having to have the same thing and the kind of uh, the shackles of that. If, if, what, what if I can't find my brand of whatever it is, mm. is the non-attachment means that you, you are much more present because you see what's in front of you and you celebrate that and, you know, you try this and, and it's fine, it's good. It's not mm. that, but it's good. It's, mm. It is, uh, I think, in terms of an approach to life, it's probably ultimately healthier, isn't it? Yeah. Because you are able then to move through the world much more easily yeah even though it's harder to eat gluten-free in the world yeah 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 it isn't it isn't you know it is that is that it's that thing of your approach isn't it because uh it like I was busy today and so I just had an omelette for lunch and I, I, I didn't have anything else. It was just eggs and butter and that's what I had. And part of me was thinking, I must have a salad with this or I should have. And, but actually all I had was the eggs and it was fine. And, and somehow just accepting that sometimes some things are a certain way and that's good. That's enough. Yeah. It's very freeing, I think. You know, we get and too we, attached. And it's funny that I say this because I develop recipes for a living. And of course, I want people to cook my recipes. But I think we overeat. I think we overeat. I think we over focus on food. I think we focus on brands of food. We just, like I think about my grandparents, not my, my paternal grandparents, because obviously my grandparents on my mom's side were obsessed with their business and it was, was food. But my grand, my dad's parents were, they would just eat the same thing every day because that's what they grew. They had eggs from their chickens. They had beans in their garden. It wasn't, they didn't have this fixation with food. And I, you know, obviously I've had anorexia and disordered eating. And so I, food has always been a focus of control for me mm-hmm. um, in so many manifestations, but I just, sometimes I have to reference them Mm. to just calm the whole thing down mm. it's just not that important mm. we need nourishment mm. food at the table is a wonderful thing mm. we can sit at the table with people and use that as an excuse to really have conversations and open ourselves up and uh express ourselves because all that's all we ever want is just to really be heard and seen mm. But it doesn't have to be this grandiose thing either. It can just be super humble and and it could be eggs, two eggs with butter, and that's perfectly fine. Exactly. It's yeah. the uh, and that takes us back to you know that that food, simple food that celebrates produce can be the most wonderful thing. And I, I think you're right. A lot of the kind of recipe development that we do is holiday food, and it should be treated like that. And it should be. Uh, and uh, that's why I would say to people, I'm really glad it takes you ages to make puff pastry because otherwise you would eat it all the time and puff pastry is holiday food yeah it's treat food it's party food so so don't be having all this starchy stuff all the time it is the beans and the veg and the butter and the eggs and those things that are the things that that you know nourish our bodies properly yeah yeah and especially during the pandemic when we didn't have, everybody was, myself included, oh, I don't have that brand of oat milk that I need, that I use. Sometimes we need to be shook up a little bit to mm. really 
appreciate what we have and what we can lose or mm. what we can live without too. Mm. And, mm. Um, and, and so we just, it's, it's good to take a step back sometimes and reassess. Yeah. yeah. Make, make things more simple. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Aram, I think that's a good place to end. I've had, I've, we've been talking for ages. Um, that is such a beautiful conversation. Thank you. I really oh, feel, gosh, I really thank you so much for sharing uh, and thank for you. being so honest and, and real. You're a, an incredibly genuine and uh, even though you may feel your ping on the inside, you're very uh, a wonderful communicator, and I I really think that's what people love about you is that you wear your heart on your sleeve, and it's an incredibly brave and beautiful thing to do. Uh, thank you for showing people how to do it. Oh, thank you so much. I might start crying any second. <laughs> <laughs> I often think I'll end the podcast just by crying. <laughs> I might just record myself <laughs> crying just as a kind of outro <laughs> just kind I of mean... sniffling <laughs> thank you for listening and now you're a little bit in love with Aran you can go and check out her blog and her Instagram account Canel Evani and I'll pop uh, links to all of those things in the show notes and I'll also put a link to her Arroz con Leche which talks about her grandma Miren. Uh, it's a lovely post and anyone who loves their grandma will also be moved by it. So I'll hope to see you again next week. I'm going to try and get these podcasts out uh, once a week, hopefully. Depends on what my schedule presents and I'm currently recipe developing a grain-free sourdough that is oh it's trying to thwart me and if you've been checking out my instagram stories you can see that i have been uh, posting some amazing halloween overproofed breads <laughs> as i go but anyway i hope to see you next week <laughs>